to the Word for Today, featuring the Bible teaching of Pastor Chuck Smith, founder of the Calvary Chapel Movement. This in-depth one-hour radio broadcast features a verse-by-verse study through the entire Bible, as originally taught by Pastor Chuck. Our study today picks up in the book of Matthew, chapter 17, verse 20, as we follow along with today's lesson. Faith, just like a grain of mustard seed, can move mountains. Now, Whether or not Jesus was talking about physical mountains or spiritual mountains is a matter of conjecture among the theologians. I like to think he's talking physically. That in reality, faith has the capacity of moving actual mountains. The interesting thing is that in Luke's gospel, Jesus declares you could uproot a sycamore tree by the roots and transplant it if you had enough faith. And and so this thing of saying, well, mountains of difficulty or mountains of problems and and spiritualizing doesn't really uh, cross over to sycamore trees. But I never read this, but what I wonder, Lord, how little my faith must indeed be. And realizing that lack of faith, if I just had faith as a grain of mustard seed, I could move mountains. And my prayer is, God, help me. Increase my faith, Lord. Now, Faith isn't really something that you can conjure up. It it comes really as a gift from God. You know, you you can't just sit there and say, I'm going to have greater faith. I'm going to have more faith. I'm going to really trust this time. I'm not going to fill it. Oh, I'm going to really do it this time. You don't hype yourself or psych yourself into it. I think many times we're trying to do that. It's, it's wonderful, it's glorious how that in that hour of real trial, in the hour of real need, so often God comes in with supernatural faith in our hearts and gives us that confidence and that assurance that he is working, he's in control. And with that faith there comes such a peace, there comes such a rest. All of that Pressure is taken away because it isn't up to me. It's up to him. I'm pressured because I feel I have to do something. And I feel that pressure of doing something, though I don't know what. But when I realize it's God who is at work, 
It's God who can do it. Then it takes the pressure off of me and I can rest. I don't know what the outcome is going to be. That really doesn't matter. The outcome will be God's will. And that's what does matter. That God works out his perfect will in every circumstance of my life. Now, I may not like the will of God. My flesh may rebel against what God is doing. But if I have that kind of confidence that it is indeed God working, his perfect purpose and plan in my life, then I can yield to it, I can accept it, and in so doing, I rest. The real peace and the real rest comes from that complete commitment of ourselves to the Lord. On one occasion, our younger daughter, when she was about three years old, who was the joy and the delight of our life, all of our children have been special blessings of God to us. I look at my older daughter and I think, oh, what a gift from God. And I look at my boys and think, oh, what blessings of the Lord. And then my younger daughter. We called her Sunshine because she just brought sunshine into our older years. When she was about three, she had an exceeding high fever. I sat up all night holding her. She was so lively, so full of energy and vitality, her eyes constantly sparkling, that little brain constantly at work. A delight to be around. But now the eyes were dull. The lifelessness, just limp, hot, miserable. And I was rocking her, trying to be close and be comfort and strength. All night long I sat there holding her, praying for her. And towards morning she went into a convulsion. I thought I was losing her. And the thought of losing her was just more than I could bear. But the Lord brought me to a point where I said, Lord, you know that I love this little thing more than I love my own life. And I would gladly give my life for her, Lord. And I would do anything to spare her this suffering. But Lord, as much as I love her, I know that you love her. And I surrender her to you. And if you want to take her to be with you, I will still serve you. I will still love you. It won't alter our relationship one iota. 
I will know that you have a plan in even taking her. And when God brought me to that place of full commitment, just, Lord, she's yours. And if you want her, I surrender to you. There came such a deep peace in my heart. I almost idolized this little gal. But when I surrendered her to the Lord, I can't describe the peace that I had. Whereas it really doesn't matter if the Lord wants her, she's his. And I'll say, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And having brought me to that place of full commitment, I discovered what real rest was. I was no longer wrestling with the issue. I was no longer in torment and torture looking at her little body being racked with fever and suffering. I was resting. The beautiful thing is that God then healed her instantly. And she's still a joy and a delight with her four children to us. Faith is the grain of mustard seed. That faith to say, Lord, not my will, your will be done. I know that you do all things well. But Jesus said, how be it this kind, goeth not out but by prayer and fasting. Now, when he said this kind, was he referring to the demon? This kind of demon, this powerful demon that had control of this young man. Or was he referring to the kind of faith that can move mountains? I don't know. But I do know that to have that kind of faith takes prayer and fasting. Faith either to remove the mountains or to remove the powers of darkness. And I think it's important that we as a church begin to spend more time in prayer and in fasting to move some of these mountains and obstacles that Satan is seeking to put in the path. When we first started Calvary Chapel 27 and a half years ago, the first Sunday we told the people, every time you ask God's blessing upon your meal, put a little postscript on that prayer and say, and Lord, bless Calvary Chapel. And I'd like to encourage you to do that. Include that in your prayer for your meal. Just a blessing, Lord, upon the ministry of Calvary Chapel. And maybe even skip a meal and just pray for God's blessing upon Calvary. Now, while they abode in Galilee... Jesus said unto them, The Son of Man shall be betrayed into the hands of men, 
They will kill him. The third day he will be raised again. And they were exceeding sorry. Again, Jesus affirms to them. They have seen now his glorified body and transfiguration. But he again affirms to them the fact that he's going to be betrayed. He'll be killed. But the third day he'll rise again. Now it's an interesting thing. The moment Jesus said they're going to kill me, their brains shut off. They never seem to hear him say, I'm going to rise again. Or they had a different concept of that. You remember when Martha said, Lord, if you'd only been here, my brother would not have died. Jesus said, your brother will live again. Oh, yes, Lord, I know on the last day of the great resurrection. And it could be that this is what they were thinking when Jesus said, I'll rise again. Oh, yeah, at the end of the age. You know. uh, and, and, and so... They, they didn't have that consciousness, that awareness that in three days he would rise again. They didn't hear that. So shocked and, and so opposite to their concepts of the Messiah, the death and the suffering that they just couldn't pick up. And it wasn't until after he rose from the dead that they began to mean, oh yeah, he did say, wow, yeah. Remember, you know, and but it just wasn't sinking in. But he's on his way now to Jerusalem, really. This is the final, as we're in this portion of Matthew, uh, he's going to be moving on down to Jerusalem, and we're not far away from the crucifixion at this point. He's moving towards it. And so he's trying to prepare them. Now, when they were come to Capernaum, <clears throat> this is the home city where Jesus established his headquarters for his ministry. Those that received tribute money <clears throat> came to Peter and said, does your master pay tribute? Now the word tribute here is a word that indicates the temple tax. Every adult Jewish male had to pay a half shekel tax for the temple a year. It was to maintain the temple. It was, it was a required kind of a offering. It was looked upon as a temple tax, half shekel every adult Jewish male over 20 years of age. And so they came to Peter and they said to him, does your master pay his temple tax? And Peter said, yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus prevented him saying, what do you think, Simon? Of whom do the kings of the earth take custom or tribute? Of their own children or strangers? Now, the kings who sought to conquer over other nations 
would always put the other nations to tribute. They would lay heavy taxes upon them. And if a king could conquer over other nations, that his own nation could be relieved of the tax burden, they would tax the foreigners. And those within the kingdom would be freed from taxation. And so Jesus is asking Peter about this custom. Uh, do they collect taxes of foreigners or of their own people? And Peter said, well, of strangers. Jesus said unto him, then are the children free. Now, you see, it was the taxes for his father's house. He had said, you know, you have made my father's house a den of thieves. They were collecting taxes for his father's house. He was the child. He wasn't really obligated to pay taxes as the son of God, collecting taxes for my father's house. Then are the children free. Children don't have to pay the taxes. They collect them from strangers. Notwithstanding, Jesus said, lest we should offend them. The word offend there is scandalon, a stumbling block. Go to the sea, cast in the hook, take up the fish that first comes up, and when you have opened his mouth, you will find a piece of money, take and give it to them for you and for me. So it had a shekel in its mouth, not just a half shekel. So Peter said, take care of you too, Peter. Jesus said, take care of you too, Peter. So pay both of our taxes. Find the shekel in the mouth. Notice that Jesus did that which was not really required of him to do in order not to stumble them. As a child of God, we need to be careful about stumbling people. Paul the Apostle gives some lessons in Romans concerning these things. It may be that as a child of God, you feel a certain liberty to do certain things. In the days of the early church, there was a real issue over eating meat. And it had developed into a spiritual issue so that there were some people that spiritually felt that it was wrong to eat meat. They felt it was a sin to eat meat. Now, Paul the Apostle did not feel that it was a sin to eat meat. But because there were those who did have a queasy conscience towards eating meat, Paul said he would not eat meat as long as the world stood if it would cause a stumbling block of an offense to a weaker brother. If my liberty is going to destroy someone who is weak in the faith, then I'll not exercise that liberty, lest I be a stumbling block to them. 
That's the law of love and walking in love. And thus, in the law of love, I live really a stricter life than even my own conscience. There may be things that I could do and not really feel that I am hurting or harming myself or my relationship with the Lord. But there may be others who have convictions or compunctions against doing those things. I am not to flaunt my liberty in Christ before them. I'm not to just go out and, and to do those things and lay before them a stumbling block. And Paul was careful about this, and Jesus was careful. He said, we don't want to stumble them. We don't want to offend them. Now, there are some things in which offenses are going to come, and you can't help it. The, you know, the fact that you got out of bed this morning is going to offend somebody. So uh, you can't, you know, be free from all offenses, but yet we need to walk carefully, walking in love, and, and not uh, doing things that would bring a weaker brother uh, a, a real problem and, and an offense to him. And Jesus was concerned about that, and we should be also. And that's exactly where we are in Matthew chapter 18. At the same time came the disciples unto Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? You know, God chose ordinary people to be his disciples. People who have the same kind of problems that we have. People who have a problem with carnality as we do. And it seems that the disciples were always interested in and arguing over the fact of who would be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And this was, a, this was a thing that they argued over. And the only reason why they argued over it, because each of them thought that they would be the greatest. And they had their reasons for thinking that. It was a dispute that went on among them. James and John, their mother even got into the issue and came to Jesus and said, Now, Lord, when you come into your kingdom, I'd like my one boy on the right side and the other on the left side of you. And so now they are questioning Jesus. They said to Jesus, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And I am certain that each of them were waiting with anticipation as Jesus, they thought, was going to say, well, Peter will be the, or John will be the, or James will, you know. They, they were each sort of just waiting for that. But instead, Jesus called a little child. And he set him in the midst of them.
call the little childers. Come here, honey. Stand here a minute. And he said, Verily I say unto you, Except you be converted and become as little children, you're not going to even enter the kingdom of heaven. You're worried about who's going to be the greatest. But unless you become converted and like a little child, you're not going to even enter the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus taught that the way up was down. And the way down was up. He that exalteth himself shall be abased. He that humbleth himself shall be exalted. If you want to be great in the kingdom of God, learn to be the servant of all. Become as a little child who really doesn't have those kind of ambitions now, with that little child there in the midst of them, Jesus went on to say a lot of different things and things that didn't seem to relate directly to the little child, but he yet kept coming back to the little child. So we have a lot of interesting teachings of Jesus, but uh, the little child is still there and, and he keeps coming back to this little child that is standing there in the midst of them. And so he said, whosoever shall receive one such little child in my name receives me. What does that tell you about ministry to children? What a blessed privilege. Receiving a little child is tantamount to receiving the Lord, according to his statement. Jesus placed a great priority on an interest in little children. And then he went on to say, and whoso shall offend one of these little ones that believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and that he was drowned in the depth of the sea. If you saw the millstones <laughs> over in Israel, you would realize that Jesus uh, is um, speaking in a pretty rash way. But again, the faith of a child, the faith in the heart of a little child, the, the believing in Jesus, how, how horrible it is for an, for an, an adult to try to destroy the faith of a little child. To pit his mind against the mind of the child in an effort to destroy that child's faith in Jesus. That's one of the worst crimes that a person could commit. Trying to destroy the faith of a child. Jesus said, be better for that person just to put a millstone about his neck and throw him in the sea. I love to hear little children talk about God. 
the simplicity of their faith, the beauty of their faith. It, it's a wonderful thing. And to try to destroy that would take some kind of a perverted mind. Woe unto the world, Jesus said, and now he seems to digress a little bit, but yet he comes back to it. Woe unto the world because of offenses. Now, he's talking about offending one of these little ones that believes in him. Woe unto the world because of offenses. For it must needs be that offenses come. I mean, you can't escape it. Living in this world, there are going to be offenses that are going to come. But woe to that man by whom the offense cometh. Jesus, in speaking of Judas Iscariot, now, it must needs be that one of his number will betray him. That was prophesied. And yet, when Judas went out to betray him, Jesus said it would have been better for that man had he never been born. Here he is saying that offenses are inevitable. It's going to happen. But woe to the man who brings the offense, from whom the offense comes. And now he is getting very dramatic when he talks about the importance of entering the kingdom of heaven. You see, the most important thing in all of our lives is where we're going to spend eternity. That's more important than your being healthy, more important than your being wise, more important than anything else is where you're going to spend eternity. And to illustrate it, Jesus gets very graphic and he, and he speaks now in very extreme terms. Wherefore, if your hand or your foot offend you, cut them off, cast them from you. It is better for you to enter into life halt or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet be cast into the everlasting fire. Somehow, in these days, we have lost sight of the etern eternal. We become so involved in the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things, that we sort of forget about eternity. And we are more prone to measure by the temporal advantage than the eternal event advantage of things. We're more prone to opt for temporal advantages rather than eternal advantages. And yet Jesus, in the most graphic way, is expressing to us the importance of the eternal destiny of our souls. You'd be better off, he is saying, going through life crippled, 
than to go into eternity lost. Now, I do not believe that Jesus is here speaking literally. If your hand offend you, cut it off. Or if your foot offend you, cut it off and throw it away. Because you would still have your other hand. But he's just trying to illustrate by this gruesome graphic illustration how important it is that your eternal welfare and your eternal destiny is settled. It's far more important than anything physical. Your spiritual health is far more important than your physical health. And so he goes on and, and again uses another gruesome graphic illustration. If thine eye offend thee, pluck it out, cast it from thee. It is better for thee to enter into life with one eye than having two eyes be cast into Gehenna fire. Now, Jesus spoke more about hell than all of the other Bible writers combined. He gave more warning about the future than all the other Bible writers. Here he is talking about the Gehenna fire. Now, there is what is called Sheol in the Hebrew or Hades in the Greek. And it is a temporary abode of today the unrighteous dead. In the Old Testament time, the word Sheol, sometimes translated hell, sometimes translated grave, is a reference to that place, sort of a holding place, that was in Old Testament times divided into two compartments. In Luke 16, Jesus talks about a certain rich man who fared sumptuously every day and a poor man that was brought daily and laid at his gate full of sores, eating the crumbs that came from the rich man's table. And the poor man died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. Moreover, the rich man died also, and in hell, Hades, lifted up his eyes, being in torment. And seeing Lazarus far off, called to Father Abraham and said, Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus that he might take and put his finger in water and touch my tongue. I'm tormented in this heat. Jesus is describing the condition of the dead before his death, before he led the captives from their captivity. For when Jesus died, he descended into hell, into Hades, with the promise of the Father that he would not leave his soul in Hades, neither would he allow the Holy One to see corruption. Jesus, we are told by Peter, preached to those souls in prison. 
Paul the Apostle tells us that he who has ascended, that is Jesus, is the same one who first of all descended into the lower parts of the earth, and when he ascended, he led the captives from their captivity. You see, according to the book of Hebrews, it was impossible that the blood of bulls or goats could put away sin. All they could do is speak of a better covenant that was coming. So the blood of the bulls and goats covered the sin, did not put away the sin. Thus all of these men of faith in the Old Testament died not having received the promise. God having reserved some better thing for us that they apart from us couldn't come into the perfected state. Now, there is what is called in the scripture the abuso. And it is the place of incarceration for evil spirits, for satanic spirits, demonic spirits. And this abuso would seem to be a shaft that goes from the surface of the earth on down into Hades, which is in the heart of the earth. Jesus, when asked for a sign, said no sign will be given to this generation except the sign of the prophet Jonah. As Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Locating then hell as the heart of the earth. He who has ascended is the same one who first of all descended into the lower part of the earth. So that Hades is the place today of the incarceration of the evil spirits of men who have died apart from Christ. And one day, death and hell are going to give them up. They're going to leave to stand before God at his great white throne. And those whose names were not found written in the book of life will then be cast into Gehenna. Now, Gehenna is the place that God prepared, according to Jesus, for Satan and his angels. Their eternal punishment is to be in Gehenna. Here Jesus is warning about being cast into Gehenna fire. Jesus will talk more about Gehenna. He tells us where the worm dieth not, neither is the fire quenched. Now, when Jesus came to Gadara and that demoniac who said his name was Legion because there were many demons and when they spoke to Christ, they requested that he would not send them to the abuso, it's translated pit, to the abuso before their time. When Jesus comes again and Satan is bound, he will be cast into the abuso, this shaft, the incarceration of evil spirits, uh, demonic forms of spirits. When the Antichrist and the false prophet come to the earth, they come out of the abuso. In the book of Revelation, there is an angel that comes with the key to the abuso and opens it up and the earth is invaded by hordes of demonic spirits. 
When Jesus comes again, Satan will be put in the abusal for a thousand years, but the false prophet and the Antichrist will at that time be cast into Gehenna. At the end of the thousand-year reign of Christ, when Satan is released for a short season, and then when he is brought to judgment, he also will be cast into Gehenna, where the beast and false prophet are, and then death and hell will give up the dead which are in them, Hades, those that are in the heart of the earth, and they will be cast into outer darkness, into the place called Gehenna, where, again, Jesus said the fires are not quenched, neither does the worm die. So the warnings against this place of punishment for Satan and his angels where those human beings who have chosen to cast their lot with Satan will share in that punishment. God didn't really create it for man. But for Satan and his angels, but those men who chose to go along with Satan's rebellion will also share. Now, he comes back to the thought of the child. The little child is probably still standing there, and at this point, I suppose, quite wild-eyed. <laughs> as he hears Jesus saying these things. And he said, take heed that you despise not one of these little ones. For I say unto you that in heaven their angels do always behold the face of my Father which is in heaven. It would seem that the scriptures do teach concerning what is sometimes classified as guardian angels. In the Psalms it said, And he shall give his angels charge over thee to bear thee up, lest at any time you dash your foot against a stone. They have been charged to watch over you, to take care of you, to protect you. Now, sometimes my angel has been sleeping on the job. <laughs> but there have been other times when I was very aware of that protection. I'm still here. Had it not been for him, I'm sure I wouldn't be. I mean, I've had such experiences where I just, I knew that the Lord was just there and, and watching over and protecting and, and keeping me. In the book of Hebrews, speaking of angels, it said, are they not all ministering spirits who have been sent forth to minister to them who are heirs of salvation? And now here Jesus is speaking of these little children who have angels. And their angels do always behold the face of my Father which is in heaven. You know that some of these little kids have angels watching over them. And so Jesus warns against really despising these because God is so concerned with the little ones. And then Jesus said, for the Son of Man is come to save that which is lost. And how think ye? What do you think about this? 
If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine and goes into the mountains and seeks the one which has gone astray? And if so be that he finds it, verily I send you, he rejoices more of that sheep than of the ninety-nine which went not astray. The heart of the shepherd, one sheep, as he counts them into the fold at night, is missing. He goes back out, searches over the mountain until he finds that missing sheep. And, and he rejoices that that lost one has been found. More than the fact that 100 or 99 are safely there in the fold, the rejoicing is over the lost one that has been found. And then back to the child. Even so, it is not the will of your Father, which is in heaven, that one of these little ones should perish. Their angels watch over them. They're important to him. It's best that you not offend one of these little ones. The interest of Jesus in the little children. It's beautiful. Now he turns. Perhaps the little child has run away back to its mommy. And so Jesus now says, If your brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he hears you, you've gained a brother. This is really a form of discipline within the church that Jesus is setting forth, though the church at this point doesn't yet exist. This is the way relationships are maintained. If you're offended because of a brother, because of his actions, because of his deeds, because of something perhaps that he has said, Best that you go alone to him, sit down with him, and talk it out with him. Don't go around broadcasting it. Do you know what he did? I can't believe it. I saw him myself. I know, you know. And, and going around broadcasting it to everybody and trying to get everybody on your side, you know. First of all, go to the brother. Deal with him. If he hears you, good. You've gained a friend. You can just bury it right there. If he doesn't hear you, then take one or two more with you. Take someone else along. That in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. In other words, <laughs> there are some people that... Um, I don't like to talk to unless I have some others with me. So if you come to see me and I invite Romaine into the office with us, <laughs> you'll know that you're one of them. <laughs> you see, a lot of times you say things to people and whether or not it is deliberate, I don't know, but 
they go out and they distort what has been said. They totally twist it, or they even add things that weren't said but attribute you as having said them. And when I find such individuals that word comes back to me that I was supposed to have said, you know, they said that I said, and, and it, it's just off the wall kind of stuff, then I get leery of even talking to those people without witnesses. And quite often when you have an offensive brother, when you go to them, quite often they rebel against what you say. They're not going to always, if they listen, if they hearken, great, you've gained a friend. If they don't, then don't jeopardize yourself by going alone the next time. Go back again with some witnesses that every word might be established in the mouth of two or three witnesses. They can say, oh, Chuck didn't say that, and you've got backup. You see, otherwise, you've just got them saying, well, Chuck said that, and I said, no, I didn't. Say, That's ridiculous. Oh, but Chuck said that. No, no, I didn't. And, and you've got their word against yours. Now you've got, Romaine can say, well, I was there the whole while, and he didn't say that kind of junk, you know. <laughs> and you're protected. Now let me say that there are times when Romaine needs to be in, not because of this, but just uh, so don't get offended if you come and see me and I have Romaine there too. I mean, that's, that's not always the case, you see. Now, if he neglects to hear them, the two or three that have gone to him, then tell it to the church. Then they should be exposed before the church. And if they refuse to hear the church, then let them be to you as heathen or publicans. They're not really a part of the fellowship of God's people. We'll return with more of our in-depth study in the book of Matthew in our next broadcast. As Pastor Chuck focuses his attention on maintaining relationships, and we do hope you'll make plans to join us. But right now I'd like to remind you that if you'd like to order a copy of today's message, simply order Matthew 17-18 through 18 when visiting the wordfortoday.org. And while you're there, we encourage you to browse the many additional biblical resources by Pastor Chuck. You can also subscribe to the Word for Today podcast or sign up for our email subscription. Once again, all this can be found at thewordfortoday.org. If you'd like to call, our toll-free number is 1-800-272-WORD. And our office hours are Monday through Friday, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. Pacific Time. Again, that's 1-800-272-9673. If you prefer to write, our mailing address is The Word for Today, P.O. Box 8000, Costa Mesa, California, 92628. And now, on behalf of The Word for Today, we'd like to thank all of you who share in supporting this ministry with your prayers and financial support. And be sure and join us again next time as Pastor Chuck continues his verse-by-verse study through the Bible. That's right here on the next edition of The Word for Today. And now, once again, here's Pastor Chuck. Father, we thank you for 
our blessed Lord. And Lord, we, we don't want to be a grief to you, but we want to be a joy to your heart. And so help us, Lord. Give us that faith that we need to rest in your will, in your sovereign purposes for our lives, committing our ways unto you, allowing you, Lord, to bring to pass your will and your purpose. Lord, may we not fret or worry or be filled with anxieties, but may we walk, Lord, in perfect trust and faith, knowing that you're on the throne, knowing that you are watching over us and that you love us, knowing that nothing can happen to us but what you have allowed it to happen and that if you have allowed it, you have a purpose, a good purpose for it. Bring us, Lord, to that place of resting in the full commitment of our ways to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. More and more as things are developing in our world, do we see the necessity of God's people fasting and praying. Powers of darkness are in control of the world in which we live. There's an increased endeavor to limit and to restrict our liberties as Christians. The real power against these is prayer. God can do the work. God can move the mountains. And so I encourage you to spend more time in prayer. Less time in front of the television. More time seeking God. Praying. Fasting. That we might see the hand of God at work even in this age. May the Lord be with you. Watch over and keep you in his life. In Jesus' name. This program has been sponsored by Calvary Chapel of Costa Mesa, California. Hey, I want to tell you about a biblical counseling ebook by Chuck Smith. It's pretty easy to download and takes only a minute. I can't tell you how grateful I am for something like this. It's a game changer for anyone who needs to counsel or talk with someone on the spot. Like when I'm talking with my friends and a complicated issue comes up, I can do a quick search on my phone and get immediate answers that lead them to God's Word. So not only do I get Pastor Chuck's commentary, but I can find out what the Bible says about it. There's seriously so many helpful topics, like dating or self-image, lust, waiting on God, or even what certain religions or cults mean. I could even use this when I have a question myself. To download the Biblical Counseling eBook by Chuck Smith, or to preview a demo, visit thewordfortoday.org and click on the link provided. To find out more, you can call one 800 
1-800-272-9673. 1-800-272-9673.